Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host for today. My name is Brady Josephson, and we have two interesting conversations for you. One is with Alex Wilson, the co-founder of The Giving Block, a company focused on accepting cryptocurrency donations for nonprofits. And then later on, we're going to chat with Joel Kalinowski. He's the director of website strategy testing, optimization, user experience, and e-commerce at Save the Children U.S. So the common theme amongst each conversation is how we can use emerging technologies, different payment methods, and testing and optimization to grow charitable giving. So first up, we're chatting with Alex. Uh, In our chat with Alex, we talk about crypto and fundraising, uh, who is best suited to pursue or not pursue a crypto strategy, and some reasonable expectations for what a fundraising strategy around crypto actually looks like. So that's conversation one. That's up next. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, Brady. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. All right. So we're going to talk about cryptocurrency, what it means for philanthropy and nonprofits and things like that. But I always like hearing uh, people's stories, especially founders and co-founders like yourself. So why the heck did you start the giving block and how did you get into this business? Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to keep it relatively concise because it's a little bit of a long story. But uh, essentially, uh, before starting the giving block, I was a management consultant working with Fortune 500 companies on emerging technology. Um, And, you know, back in 2016, 2017, blockchain and cryptocurrency was uh, quite the buzzword back then. Yeah. Um, And, you know, while working with a lot of these companies sort of on the the side, almost as a hobby at first, I was just kind of learning more and more about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, started to buy a little bit, started to trade a little bit, um, and essentially just became obsessed with, cryptocurrency and decided, you know, I wanted to basically dedicate my career or work in this industry full time. Hmm. Um, So when the end of 2017 rolled around, you probably saw some of the headlines of, you know, Bitcoin hitting 20,000 and kind of this broader market mania happening. And when that happened, I noticed a lot of these people who were making a lot of money in cryptocurrency were, of course, then looking for different ways to offset their capital gains taxes. Um, And because the IRS has classified cryptocurrency as property, that meant donating crypto directly to a nonprofit was a really tax efficient way for people to donate. Hmm. Um, So you can almost think of it from a tax perspective, like donating stock, where the donor doesn't have to pay capital gains taxes, and they get a fair market value deduction on their return. Um, So basically, saw this you know, need for nonprofits to accept crypto. Um, And despite kind of not many nonprofits accepting it, there were still hundreds of millions of dollars being donated in cryptocurrency. Hmm. Um, Basically had a really good friend from college who was also living here in DC, Pat Duffy. Um, He was working at the Lupus Foundation and we pitched their leadership in 2018 on you know, them kind of being our, our first client or a pilot in a sense to create the first easy way for nonprofits to accept crypto. Um, and then, you know, a little bit more recently, only about a year ago, we sort of launched the company more publicly, you know, and now we work with about 75 different nonprofits, small and large, kind of all over the place. 
Very cool. So it's kind of, you know, combination of uh, need, opportunity, passion, timing, uh, kind of all coming together for you. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. Kind of a, yeah, definitely a little bit of the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah, which everyone, everyone needs for any business to kind of succeed. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about some of the benefits maybe on the philanthropic side in terms of tax advantage. And we'll talk about some of the things that maybe nonprofits need to do or can consider. But can we back up one step? And for people that maybe uh, don't know, or even myself who knows very, you know, just like the minimal amount, like what is cryptocurrency and like, why is it a thing in today's world or why is there value in it in today's world? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I'll try to keep it, you know, kind of focused <laughs> on right. the, um, you know, the, the features and, and why it's good essentially, and not get too into the weeds of kind of the technical side of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the sake of kind of comparing this to, let's say the U S dollar, let's just talk about Bitcoin. Um, so when you think about Bitcoin as sort of a new type of money, some of the kind of key, uh, features or defining characteristics are, you know, that it's truly a peer to peer payment network. So when you send Bitcoin from one person to another, it's truly going from one person to another without, you know, let's say a, a bank or a payment process or anything like that in the middle. You know, even when you're uh, doing a, a bank transfer from your bank to a friend's bank or something like that, it might go through all sorts of different middlemen. Um, so it, it cuts out a lot of those intermediaries. Um, and because Bitcoin um, is, I mean, it's really global in nature, it's, it's very international in its usage um, and works really well for, for international payments too. Um, you know, it's really the first digitally native currency and it's not, you know, there's not a different version of Bitcoin in the U S than there is in Germany. Um, which is, you know, pretty convenient too, if you're, if you're traveling. Um, but you know, I think one of the reasons it's actually become more and more popular, especially recently is because Bitcoin, uh, can't be counterfeited and there's a fixed supply. So, you know, with a lot of the stimulus talks going on, uh, the U.S. government and, and a lot of other governments around the world have, in a sense, been, you know, printing more and more money. Um, and, and of course, we kind of all know how that ends when you do that too much or for too long in terms of uh, inflation. So with Bitcoin, um, there will only ever be 21 million coins in circulation. And that's, you know, predetermined in the code. Someone can't wake up tomorrow and say, actually, you know, I think we should add a few more. There's no, you know, governments or, or central banks or anything like that involved that can, you know, really change the way the code works. So you, you're getting exactly what you think you are from, from looking at the code and the code's open source. So people can verify that at any time. Um, so I think those are kind of a, a few of the key high level pieces to keep in mind about it. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I, I didn't even know the, the limited $21 million or 21 million side of things. And that's really what makes it more of an asset as opposed to like, the US dollar, right? In terms of being property and the valuation can go up or down, unlike currency, right? So yeah. it's, called a, it's called a currency, but it's really like an asset. Is that kind of true? Yeah. And, and a lot of people say Bitcoin is like digital gold um, mm. because it has that scarcity piece of it. So, you know, a lot of time with economic uncertainty in the past, people have bought a lot of gold and you've seen gold go up these, these last six months too, with the kind of economic uncertainty too. Right. Um, but you know, younger people aren't buying gold anymore. Um, they don't really see the value in it. Um, and so a lot of younger people, especially millennials and Gen Z's are, are flocking towards Bitcoin as sort of a digital gold. 
Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Digital gold. I like that kind of an analogy. It's easy for me to keep it in the right bucket. So thanks for that. Um, cool. So I'm sure, you know, if people want to find out more about crypto, there's like a million different places that they can find out more, but I want to talk more about why it's kind of useful or how nonprofits use it. So you talked about the tax advantage, uh, on the donor side and that's, um, you know, really interesting and really useful. What about on the, on the nonprofit side? So obviously you've created a, a company, uh, in a business around making it easier for nonprofits to take in and process crypto. So wh- what are some things that maybe they need to consider before they go down this path of either working with you or being, you know, proactively seeking out crypto donations from their donors? Yeah, for the nonprofits, what we, what we think is, is kind of the key reason. And, and, you know, besides just the, you know, you know, more revenue kind of side of things, um, we're seeing this as a really good way for them to diversify their revenue, especially when it comes to, um, you know, getting new donors and new younger donors. Hmm. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of these users of crypto are Gen Z's, millennials. So a lot of these donors actually end up being, you know, in their 20s and 30s. Um, there's a recent report put out. There's about um, 101 million verified crypto users in the world which I think is probably a lot more than most people realize. So it's a huge, huge donor pool. Hmm. Um, and something like 60% of them, I think, are younger than 30. Um, wow. So, you know, a lot of the time we're, we're talking to people at nonprofits and they always ask us like, well, does anyone really use cryptocurrency, right? They're always kind of skeptical <laughs> about that. Um, and, and then they're surprised that here there's about 100 million people out there using it. Um, and usually they haven't heard about it. I, I think mostly it's kind of an age gap thing, right? Um, you know, the, the people we're talking with, the nonprofits aren't necessarily the, the typical demographic that uses cryptocurrency. Hmm. Um, and then kind of a, a secondary piece besides kind of this new donor pool, I would say, is um, I think a lot of nonprofits like kind of, you know, just being innovative, right? It shows their donors that they're kind of keeping up with the times. Um, we, we kind of joke that it's as, you know, it's almost as good of a marketing tool as it is a fundraising tool. Um, just because accepting crypto donations is such an interesting concept because not everyone's doing it yet. Um, we have nonprofits tell us when they start accepting crypto and, you know, they'll put out like a a blog post or a press release saying, Hey, you know, we've just started accepting cryptocurrency donations. In some cases, those posts they put out are their best performing post of the year. Um, (laughs) because, and there's kind of a couple reasons for that. I think, I think the main one is because crypto isn't that mainstream yet. Yeah. People in the crypto community love to elevate that kind of news and, and kind of help circulate it, if that makes sense. Um, because for crypto users, it's, it's legitimizing in a sense, right? When not everyone's using crypto yet, they yeah. love more and more, you know, large organizations, especially large nonprofits, like let's say Save the Children, accepting crypto. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. We we recently did a research study looking at um, we were really looking at multi-channel donor communications. But to do that, we make donations ourselves. And one of the things we were interested in was like the ways to give. So we actually tracked and we included Bitcoin. So not all cryptocurrency, but Bitcoin, which is the most likely that we would find. We included that as a thing. Like, did we see either through the giving process or on their ways to give page anything about Bitcoin and just two percent of nonprofits? Uh, and these are generally larger nonprofits, but only 2% had any mention of uh, Bitcoin at all, you know, on their site or in the giving experience. So it's still, 
while it's maybe you're like risen in prominence in like the the discussion, like in the world, in the nonprofit space, uh, I've seen it come up a lot, but it se- still seems like a lot of nonprofits aren't really doing that. Um, so now one of the interesting things is, you know, if it is digital golds, it's not just like a PayPal button, like you have now an asset that you have to like liquidate and take care of. So it's not as straightforward as just like accepting a different type of, you know, currency or different type of money, right? So what what do nonprofits need to do or are or are all nonprofits in a good situation to just like, you know, throw up a widget and just say, hey, we're taking on crypto. There's got to be more to it, right? Yeah, it's definitely more complicated than, like you said, throwing up a, a PayPal or a credit card donation button. But it's it's not, I think, as crazy as people think it is. Um, <laughs> I would say it's you can really compare it to stock donations, um, except that um, it's a much easier process for the donor. So on the back end for nonprofits, they're going to have basically a cryptocurrency exchange account that we would help them set up. That is very similar to opening like a brokerage account with, you know, Fidelity or Schwab, except in this case, it's cryptocurrencies. And then that cryptocurrency exchange account on the front end is is going to be linked with a donation widget, um, which is pretty rare to find for, for stock donations. But this process for the donor is at least similar. And then in terms of... Um, or, or sorry, I misspoke, not similar process for the donor, but for the nonprofit sort of on the back end. Um, in terms of them recording it as you know a non-cash contribution. So at least if they're working with us, we have an option for them to automatically convert their cryptocurrency into US dollars right. when that donation comes in. So they don't need to worry about the volatility or anything like that. They're basically just getting cash um, that they can you know then move over to their bank account. Um, which is, you know, the generally advisable thing for most, especially smaller, even medium-sized nonprofits with any type of non-cash asset is just liquidate the thing and move on with your life instead of trying to manage and figure all that stuff out. So it's cool that that's kind of built in. And I think what's really unique, you know, say for crypto compared to like stocks, and even though we're getting like uh, donor advice fund widgets are becoming more popular, um, because it's so digital native, digital centric and younger donors, um, it's all digital, right? There's no like, you know, paperwork going on in the background. Like you can just process this all through your site and their site and these brokerage accounts, right? There's no, it's pretty simple. It, if of all the different types of payment, it makes the most sense for something to be transacted purely on the online giving experience, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, you know, like, like you were kind of saying, it's, it's digitally native. So the kind of process of the donor sending the money to the nonprofit is, is really quick and easy from a donor perspective, probably even faster and easier than, you know, pulling out a credit card and doing a credit card transaction. Um, And I would say kind of in the the funds moving also more quickly, because when I send a Bitcoin or or other crypto transaction, that's usually hitting the nonprofits account within minutes. Um, so they have access to the funds very, very quickly. What's, what's the fee structure like, um, either for you or just kind of like generally speaking, you know, it's not like, uh, is it like a transaction kind of thing? Is it structured more like, uh, you know, stock and assets? What does that look like? Um, yeah, so we, we try to really structure this similar to other fundraising platforms in the sense that we have, because we play a kind of a unique role in the sense that we're basically a payment processor plus a fundraising platform. Um, so the way we've structured it is there's basically a payment processing fee for, for the crypto donations coming in, but then we have different packages, basically annual subscription fees, um, that offers different features or different levels of marketing support. 
Um, because of course, you know, although we offer the, the technical side of things, it's, it's really important for the nonprofits to get the messaging around cryptocurrency, right? Because, you know, it's one thing to accept crypto, but if you're not telling the right people or not telling them in the right way, then you're probably not going to get a ton of donations. Um, so we actually spend a lot of time, you know, interacting with the crypto community to make them aware that, you know, donating crypto is an option and there's all these nonprofits out there doing it. Um, and ultimately, you know, driving as much traffic as possible to our platform so they can find sort of our aggregated list of nonprofits and, and choose a cause that, you know, aligns with, with them. Are there certain types of, of nonprofits, either like vertical or size that, that you think uh, or have seen that are like more likely to jump on this or can benefit from others? I know like some of the early ones that I saw were like, you know, Silicon Valley type uh, nonprofits, which makes sense, you know, that they would be some of the first to hop on something like this. But do you see any trends or from what you've seen in terms of success, like certain types of organization, vertical or size? Yeah. So in the beginning, there was definitely, like you said, kind of, a, I guess the early adopters were sort of the Silicon Valley or tech focused organizations, like, you know, organizations that, you know, for example, let's say a code to inspire, let's teach girls how to code. Um, those were really the early adopters, but now that it's been out there a little bit longer, that seems to kind of be going away to the point where all sorts of nonprofits are accepting crypto and doing well. Although I will say some of our best performing clients are actually focused on helping kids. Um, so groups like Save the Children and No Kid Hungry, for example, hmm. um, they've been pretty early movers in this. And, you know, it's, their causes seem to really be resonating with donors. Interesting. Um, and then on the size size, I know you mentioned before that, you know, it's not necessarily just the, the mega large nonprofits, but even small organizations. Are there some things that organizations need to have in place before they would maybe pursue a kind of, you know, working with you or, or again, pursuing more of like a crypto strategy? Yeah, I mean, in, in general, we have kind of a, a soft rule that we, we prefer to only work with nonprofits that do at least a million in revenue a year. Um, because we find often the smaller nonprofits could really, you know, better use their their time and money in getting kind of some of these fundamental things right, like having a good website, having a good social media presence, and and kind of digital marketing strategy. You kind of need some of those kind of you know some of that groundwork laid uh, before you can really have an effective uh, sort of crypto strategy because. Um, especially when, you know, a lot of these younger donors come to a website or interact with your social media, if they have any doubt that, you know, this is a, you know, an established organization or that, you know, has a, a good digital presence, that could be a big turnoff for some younger donors, I think. Um, so I would think of it in terms of, you know, make sure you're ready for younger donors before you really consider crypto. So we spend plenty of time actually talking nonprofits out of the idea of accepting cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah, which I think that's always uh, a, a good sign when when you're willing to say this is who we aren't for. Uh, and we were talking a little bit before I was admitting that we're kind of like crypto skeptics around here in so much that it's disproportionate or people put the cart before the horse. Right. So that multi-channel study that I mentioned earlier, where we looked at how many people are actually accepting, you know, Bitcoin, you know, we'll find things like, you know, 20 percent of donors who wrote a check received zero communications in four months. Or the likelihood that if you give uh, offline that you get an email, it's like 14% of organizations. Like these are 
basic systems and communication practices of just like communicating to donors, you know, via email or via mail that we see like brokenness everywhere. Every time we do these studies and then we'll like look at a conference or something and it'll be like, you know, like learn how crypto can like revolutionize your fundraising. And there's an element of that that's just cool and is truth. And a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, but then on the flip side, there's a lot of it's like, how, how is crypto going to revolutionize an organization that can't even like communicate to a donor? You know, they're just, there's a disconnect there. So it's always, I'm so um, pleased to hear that, you, you know, you guys are thinking about the same types of things or just saying, Hey, this isn't for everyone at all times, uh, which is great. Um, if you can look into your crystal ball and, and look into the future, which is always a dangerous thing as we are in 2020, um, what, what do you think the, the future of crypto and philanthropy is? Is it just, you know, more different types of currency, uh, uh, an increase in, you know, younger giving? Is it more giving across borders or around the world? Or like, what do you see as, as the future of crypto in the world of philanthropy? I mean, we're, we're going to be a, a little biased on this, right? But in our view, <laughs> uh, this is almost like what credit cards were like for nonprofits, let's say, 10 years ago, hmm. um, where it's going to take a while before this becomes an everyday form of, of donations or, or money more broadly. But ultimately, you know, we're pretty, pretty bullish on the cryptocurrency sector in general and think this is a market that's going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Um, and, and part of the reason we think that, too, is because you see now some of the largest companies in the world, like, let's say, Facebook, for example, looking into developing their own cryptocurrency. Um, even some of the banks now, Goldman Sachs has apparently been talking about it internally, if they should develop their own cryptocurrency. Um, and even some countries deciding if, if they want to, you know, kind of fully go digital and, and have a cryptocurrency. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a trend we're, we're seeing, and that seems to be accelerating. And, you know, we mentioned earlier that there's about 100 million, you know, verified crypto users out there, that the rate of growth of those users is incredibly fast. I think it's doubling something like every, every year or two. Um, so it doesn't seem to be a trend that's, that's slowing down anytime soon. And I think the early days will be dominated by a lot of younger users. But as it gets easier to use and a little bit more mainstream, I think the kind of age demographics will, will normalize a bit. Yeah, no, for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks for kind of unpacking this, uh, lowering my levels of skepticism a little bit and sharing a little bit more about what y'all are up to. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so you can always go to our website, uh, thegivingblock.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn um, at Alex Wilson TGB. All right, we'll be sure to send that out as well. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Alex, and uh, good luck with all that you're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brady. Hi, everyone. It's Brady here again. Thank you so much for listening. We'll get you back to the podcast in a second. I just wanted to make sure you knew about an opportunity to uh, develop and hone your online fundraising skills and give you a special discount. So the Next After Institute, we now have nine online on-demand courses, including our newest one, which is the Bold Training with Dan Pallotta, that you can take at any time, whenever you want, get CFRE credits, as well as certification from the Next After Institute if you complete the course and pass the exam. This is our way and approach to try to professionalize the digital fundraising side of our space and really use data, research, and evidence to inform how we think and how we believe online fundraising should be done. So there's courses like email fundraising optimization, intro to online fundraising optimization, donation page optimization, a lot of optimization courses, as well as Google Analytics, copywriting, 
and more. So if you're interested in these courses, you can find them at courses.nextafter.com. But maybe the best thing to look at and what we're offering right now is a special discount to become a member. So by becoming a member of the Next After Institute with an annual or monthly uh, subscription, you can access all nine current courses and any future courses whenever you want uh, for just that one fee, as little as $24.50 a month if you use the special code YEARENDE. That's Y-E-A-R-E-N-D. You can do that at nextafter.com slash membership. So if you want to explore further, look at the courses or sign up today, go to nextafter.com slash membership and be sure to use the code YEARENDE to save 50% off your monthly or annual subscription. All right, back to the pod. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alex. Uh, in that conversation, I mentioned some research that we have been working on and doing in conjunction with the folks at Virtuous. Uh, the studies really focus on multi-channel fundraising, but as a part of that, we wanted to look at uh, 119 nonprofits' ways to give page to see what types of um, payment methods and different ways could you actually support an organization. So I just wanted to highlight a couple of the findings there uh, before we get into the next part of this podcast with Joel Kalinowski from Save the Children. So first off, one in five organizations we found did not have a ways to give page. So a ways to give page is different than your donate now page. Donate now is, you know, donate now, accept the donation, go as fast as you can for the most part and accept that uh, credit card or possibly bank or EFT donation. Whereas a ways to give page is where you can take more time and talk about all the other ways that someone might be able to support you. So uh, some of the things that we looked at was, you know, could you make a gift um, online or credit card? 80% had a way to do that on the on the ways to give page. So not even 100% pointed you to the online uh, donation page. So that was kind of interesting. Um, just over half, 56% shared how donors could send in a check. So especially because we were looking at online and offline giving, uh, that was kind of surprising that how few organizations weren't saying, here's how to mail us a check. Um, around the same number, 56% provided uh, Brock brokerage or stock information, sorry. So uh, a lot more organizations, that was a little bit higher than I'd expected. Uh, only 29%, so less than a third, included how to make a phone call or give over the phone. Uh, 20% had PayPal. Uh, 20% included bank account direct deposit options. Just under 20%, 19% included a donor-advised fund option, something that uh, is rising in prominence in terms of people looking and looking for ways to give and having those as a way to give. And then just 2%, as I mentioned in that interview with Alex, just 2% had a Bitcoin uh, option or a cryptocurrency option. And then 1% had a way to text in a donation. So some of the interesting things that we found there on a ways to give page. And, you know, I'd imagine if we do this study again in the future or looked at those same types of questions two, three years from now, uh, those percentages would all change. But at least from my perspective, the advisement on the ways to give pages, if you have a way for people to send in money, you should have it on that page. You can prioritize them, but, you know, listing all the different ways uh, is advisable because if someone's looking to give and they want to use crypto or PayPal or send in a check, you should make it easy for them to know how to do it on the ways to give page, not on your donate now page. All right, enough for me. Moving on to the next part of the conversation here. We are chatting with Joel Kalinowski. He's the director of website strategy, testing, optimization, user experience, and e-commerce at Save the Children U.S., 
Now, Save the Children is one of the largest and most well-known charities in the world and has been helping children in the U.S. and around the world for over 100 years. Uh, in this conversation, we talk about testing and optimization, something that he knows plenty about. We talk about why some nonprofits maybe don't do as much testing as they possibly should. We talk about emerging technologies and payment methods, including crypto. And then we have some rapid-fire questions for Joel at the end about his favorite tools, websites, TV shows, and uh, DoorDash meals. So that's coming up. Thanks again to Joel for coming on the podcast. And thanks to you for listening. Hi, Joel. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to chat about technology and testing and payment methods and all that kind of stuff. We're going to dive into the weeds a little bit. But before that, I'd love to know how you ended up at Save the Children. You know, you obviously have a background in like optimization and marketing, but how'd you end up at at Save the Children? Sure. I um. You know, I'd love to tell you a, a grand story about how I was just so attracted to the mission and, um, you know, and they drew me in and part, I guess that's partly true, but the, uh, the real story is that our VP of digital is somebody that I had worked with in the past. Hmm. They were doing some, uh, structural changes and looking to expand their bench strength. And he had brought me in on a consulting basis, which then ultimately led to a full-time role. So that's, that's how I ended up in nonprofit. Although I will say Nonprofit and retail are strikingly similar. Hmm. It's interesting because I think those of us that have spent all our time on nonprofit, a lot of times we're like, oh, we're, we're so different. And at one level, I think there are a lot of pretty significant differences, but maybe in the mechanics, it's really not, right? Yeah. I mean, in one case, you're selling a product in the other place, you're, in the other place, you're selling an emotion. But in, the, in, in both cases, you're really trying to understand the user and there, there are emotional drivers in both ends. So the way you quote unquote sell to them is, is, is quite similar. Right. Understanding humans and positioning what you have to sell in front of them. It's not, you know, fundamentally hugely different, right? Right. Um, yeah. I and mean, again, it's just, it's all about the transaction. So you have a really kind of interesting title or, or unique role and title, at least in our space, you know, really focus on testing and optimization was that a role that already existed at, at Save the Children? Was it kind of created for you or like, how did that position kind of come to be? Sure. It wasn't, it wasn't strictly created for me. There was a position, uh, you know, we had gone through a reorganization as part of our, uh, as part of our marketing division and uh, the, the, the organization's very data centric. And mm-hmm. so they knew they wanted a testing and optimization focused position. They didn't necessarily have it fully scoped. Um, there had been, you know, there had been a couple of different iterations of different data-driven or testing um, positions, but they existed in different parts of the organization or different parts of the division. And so that's that's sort of how that came about. Uh, we, as part of the consulting work, you know, we were really working on defining this and other roles. And essentially, the you know, testing and optimization could 100% be its own, you know, isolated role. The challenge was for us and probably for a lot of organizations was that if you put that in a silo over by itself and it exists outside of operations and strategy, that person or that, that function will constantly just try to break through into mm. the normal flow of work and saying, Oh, we should do this. or we should do that. Right. And so we ultimately decided to make it a, you know, a broader website strategy role. Um, and then later expanded that into operations. So really testing and optimization became a, core function within our overall website operations. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that makes it even more unique. So, you know, why do you think other organizations um, maybe don't have those roles or don't take that approach or, you know, aren't investing as much in, in testing and optimization, even really large ones? Sure. I think, you know, from, for the, for the large organizations, 
you know, the ones that really have the traffic to be able to test in a, in a strictly AB environment, I'm going to say it's, you know, time resourcing and, and experience. You know, if you've, if you don't know how to build out that kind of function, it can be mm. sort of daunting. You know, you're going to need technology to support it. You know, you're going to need, you know, a, a marketing slash operations person to sort of spearhead it, but you're also mm. going to need development resources. Right. And again, if you haven't built it, it's really hard to know what are all the components and how much is it going to cost me? And then the key question of like, after I do all that, how much is it going to matter in the end? And so right. um, until they've, you know, figured out all the plugs in that equation, I think it can be a, it sort of feels like leaping off a, off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah, no, I could see that. So how do we think we change that? Is it, you know, like more organizations like yours that, you know, have this and can kind of maybe go on more podcasts and do more speaking and say, <laughs> here's, here's like how it works or, you know, so that there's a model that someone else can say like, oh, this is kind of how it's done or what do you think? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's one of those things that, you know, the, even the testing, even the testing tools haven't been around for all that long in terms mm-hmm. of, in terms of overall marketing tech. And so I think as it becomes more mainstream and more people have the skill set, um, it becomes a little bit easier to digest. And then, yes, you know, it, it's it's rare even in 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 some of the larger retail organizations to see to see somebody purely you know devoted to testing and optimization. And again, that's not the totality of my role, but right. in general, I think the more organizations put an emphasis on, we want somebody that has qualitative and quantitative research capabilities to affect user experience. Um, the more people like us are going to be, you know, skilling up on that and making sure that we can actually do that. And then it just all becomes a a cycle. Hmm. So uh, you've been in your role now for how long? Uh, I've been with the organization two years. And then you did some consulting before. Yeah, it was was about six months of consulting and ever. And then after that as a, as an employee. So what are, uh, what are some of the key learnings that you've had kind of in this role? I mean, I'm sure there's tons, but especially maybe like the for-profit, non-profit or some of the more stark learnings that you've had in your time. Sure. I think, um, you know, I think the thing, and, and this isn't certainly the first time I've learned that, but it's, it's something that, you know, I, I'm constantly reminded of is that websites are incredibly contextual and the users mm-hmm. on that website are incredibly unique. Mm-hmm. And so even though you, even though you see, you know, someone like next after doing experiment results and you're like, Oh, that makes total sense. And you, you sort of think to yourself, Oh, we could just implement that because that like is, you know, totally logical. The results make sense. Even if it was someone that you would consider a direct peer in the, in the right. nonprofit space of like, we do very similar things and you see very different results. Users right. are constantly surprising you. And if you need to be reminded of that, even outside of the AB environment, you know, go into some of your screen recordings or some of your other tools and watch what users are actually doing on the site and be reminded that it's not, it's not linear. It, it's not logical. <laughs> and in some cases it's a little erratic. So you just right. like have to remember that the user is, is not a construct inside your head. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really good point. And you know, one of the, the luxuries kind of that, that we have is right. Getting to see tests and experiments across a number of of different nonprofits. And there are certainly clusters in areas where we can more confidently say like, this is not a universal, but universal ish, you know, because we've seen it replicated a few times, but never is it a hundred percent, never, ever, ever, ever. Like it's just not the case. And you can run the same test with the same organization and have it make all the sense in the world, run it the next year and get the different result. Right. Because things evolve and users preferences or desires change. And 
it's interesting because, you know, you don't have unlimited time to run any test that you want. And so you use some of the past research to help inform like, okay, we should prioritize this because we believe it will work. So yeah. in that case, it's very helpful, but it's not a, it's not, like you said, it's not always a slam dunk. Yeah. And one of the things that I've, I've learned, the more that I've done research from, you know, um, you know, conversion Excel or booking.com or like really test heavy organizations mm-hmm. is how much they use testing on like risk reduction. You know, like I think in my mind, it's always like, well, that's the only way you know what's working. And yeah. that's definitely one side of things. But there's this whole other side of testing, which is just like limiting risk. If you're going to roll out a new product feature, a new website design, a new, you know, you don't just go whole hog and like, here it is world, you know, like how they use it to reduce risk is kind of like a tol- totally different side of, of testing that you yeah, know, I think is really interesting. Yeah, it is actually really interesting. It's funny that you say that because they, you know, they talk about that with like, you know, even just some of the metrics within an AB environment of like, it's a, it's a, a spectrum of risk, but really like, you know, when, if a test quote unquote fails, or like, you're not able to prove the hypothesis, you know, that is incredibly valuable because that might've been a decision that you just were going to make without testing. Right. And so by not making that decision, you're not costing yourself uh, money. Yeah. And I'm sure even in the failed tests, there's often like, oh, but did you see like the, the mobile split? Like, well, that wasn't that interesting, you know, and that gives you a new idea is like, well, maybe we were onto something, but with only the segment or something. So like very, very few t- tests are like truly wasted, right? Absolutely. Or there'd be tests that you think are going to have these like astronomical impacts that um, you don't see a detectable lift. And then you, you do something that's relatively minor that is astronomical. <laughs> and so like, you just never know where that, where that's going to, where that's going to land, which, you know, really speaks to like, even we as testers have, have those biases. Right. And we know that from researching bias of how it works, but we still have it within us. And so it's a great reminder when a test that you think is going to be like insignificant and silly, right. ends up being actually impactful. So how did you, how did you learn so much about testing? Did you kind of like have, you know, formal training? Was it part of your work? Did you go to conferences? Like, how did you pick up your, your knowledge in testing? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> I think, you know, optimization was part of one of my very, very first roles. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly it was outside of the AB environment. But at that point, it was all about, you know, uh, researching best practice, research, you know, uh, looking at what competitors are doing, doing, I mean, you, you know, at an AB environment, but you're doing a lot of before and after, like we made this change. What are they, what are the effects? And then that gradually evolved into a more of an AB, um, an AB environment. But I would say in general consumption, uh, I had done some, a, a lot of qualitative optimization work as part of my graduate thesis. And mm-hmm. so that sort of spearheaded my, my research quest. And then since started doing more of like, you know, the individual certificates or just any of the, any of the, any of the material that's available. Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, we will have to have you back on where we talk maybe more like exclusively about testing, but any tips, you know, (laughs) if someone's listening, who's just kind of like a little bit into testing or wants to go deeper or some, some things that you've learned that that you want to share with them. Yeah, I think again, it's about consumption. So finding an area of interest, I mean, within optimization, there's going to be a lot of different areas. You know, you could be messaging, functional design, um, structural. I mean, ma- lately I've gotten more into like the behavioral neural marketing side of it. So find an area that sort of sparks your interest and start to just dive into it, see mm-hmm. what other people are testing, see what other people have to say. It makes it a lot easier to sort of formulate your own hypotheses later. Cool. Awesome. Uh, so I kind of want to shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, technology and payment methods. So, you know, there's a lot of conversations around crypto and Save the Children is, is one that is, you know, taking in some donations with crypto. But you know, increasingly there's like Facebook fundraisers and donor advice funds and these kind of like third party, you know, ways that organizations uh, bring in revenue now. 
like from an operations side, from a strategic standpoint, like how do you handle the proliferation of all these like third funding, third party funding sources? Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I had a great and easy answer <laughs> for you to say like, oh, you do X, Y, and Z. Right. I think on the, on the marketing and strategy front, it's really about trying to pivot to be where the user is. And in, in, in an example, like Facebook fundraisers, there was a long period of time and even somewhat, you know, even recently Facebook heavily promoted it. And because that's where the users are and that's where they're paying attention, um, you know, you pivot to, to try to capture the users there. On the crypto side, it's very similar. It's like users are are using cryptocurrency, not in mass mass droves, but certainly in enough that you want to pay attention to it. And you you just sort of want to be there if the user wants to give you Bitcoin or if the user wants to start a Facebook fundraiser, if the user wants to do any one of these things, you try to be in all these places. I think what what is tricky or what you always will struggle with is like how to prioritize it. Cause there's yeah. going to be a million opportunities and you have to sort of say, what are the things we can act on now? And what are the things that we should wait and do later? Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, when we do our mystery donor studies and, and we're like, we've started looking at this specifically of like what types of payment methods do they actually accept or even like proactively say you can give um, the it's, it's all about the prioritization and balance. So like Amazon smile, great example nothing wrong with taking in money from Amazon Smile necessarily. The problem that I would say is wrong is when you're on your donation page saying, you know, please give through Amazon Smile. Like you don't want someone to go from your donation page to Amazon Smile to like give you 50 cents or something. Like it's how it's used and prioritized, you know? Absolutely. And, and, and you're, you have, you make a great point because we, we talk about this a lot. I mean, there are areas of our site where there are probably 50 different ways that you can, you can participate, whether that's Amazon Smile or when you sign up for a SurveyMonkey survey, or there's you know a bunch of different ways you can participate. And it's always a strategic struggle as to like what what do you want to put as your primary message and what goes on the donation form and and all of those all of those components. Because really, I mean, you know, there's so many asks that it would be great if you could just pluck out the one you know the user is going to want, but you don't, so you really have to trim it down. Yeah, I think the other thing that, that we've seen, I don't know if, if, if you've seen this, where um, you'll, you'll feel the temptation to substitute like the transaction method for the reason to give. And we see it all the time in our research when it'll be like all about Amazon Smile or all about crypto or all about Air Miles or all about, you know, all about how you can transact. And then you look at it, you know, more objectively and you're like, I don't know why I should do this in the first place. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't care what the transaction method is. You know, there's so much emphasis on the like, transaction that we lose the you know value proposition sure so how do you keep that in mind you know or or do you do you have that temptation internally when people are like oh we got this new shiny thing you know and it let's you know make it shine (laughs) i think i mean i get a lot i have a lot of those requests and i have lots of those (laughs) conversations and and the thing is is that you know especially in a larger organization the shiny things aren't all coming from the same people right so there's lots of different people that have shiny things Generally, I operate on the, you know, we have to make it as as intuitive and as easy for the user. And if we get to a point where it makes sense to layer this on there, because like, here's a great example, um, in, uh, employer matching gifts. Like I was very nervous about adding an additional field on our donation form. We had to test it. We, you know, we went through a lot of different stuff because I really did think that it was going to interrupt the experience. That was not the results that we saw, um, mm-hmm. which is great. 
However, it was, it, it, it was something that like, if, if somebody had just come to me and said, oh, we should do employer matching gifts. And we just, you know, stuck that on the donation form. And then like, we should do Google pay, you know, we, and it just becomes a, it becomes sort of a junk drawer of, of options. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, we kept having that debate, uh, like where should the, the employer match, you know, fit? Cause we'd see it all right. the time. And my general belief initially was like, we'll put it afterwards. Like, don't interrupt the flow, put it afterwards. And then we, we actually did some uh, discussions with Double the Donation, which is one of the companies that does this. And mm-hmm. their data says you have people say yes in the giving flow, but you don't have them do the employer lookup until afterwards, right? So it's this very easy decision of like, yeah, I want my employer to match and they keep going, like low friction, low pain. And then they go to the confirmation page and then that's when you can you know, look up next after and people might forget their company name or something like that. Have you tested to, to that level? I know it's very niche and I just kind of threw it at you, but like, what did no, you find? No, it's, um, it's interesting. This is all very new. Um, we haven't tested to that level. We actually have a lot more testing to do of like, right now the form just, or the uh, field just exists as part of the donation form. They do um, the employer lookup and all of that. What was interesting is that it didn't affect conversion rate having it there. And it may have actually impacted average gift positively. Hmm. Um, I sort of have a, a working theory that it has something to do where like, People think like, oh, my employer is going to match, even if they don't realize oh, like, yeah. there's 15 steps that I have to take afterward. Yeah, um, which power to it, right? But we have to do some additional testing to see if like if that holds true, and then where in the process it should go. Yeah, well, I mean, matching offers normally increase conversion and average gift. So you know, being kind of reminded that your employer will match, I could see lift the average gift as well. Which is, I haven't actually thought about why that would work. So that actually. You should test that and let me know if, uh, if your hypothesis is correct because it we'll makes some sense. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's, it's interesting. Um, so, you know, we have all these kind of like third-party ones, and we'll talk about, um, you know, crypto in a second. But there's also just payment methods, you know. Uh, I was on a, a content site and just saying, like, hey, you got to subscribe. I was on my iPhone, sign in with, you know, Apple, you know, bing, bang, boom, right? So whether you use Google, whether you use Apple, now yeah. Google Pay and Apple Pay, uh, have you guys seen any, um, you know, increase in users like using those? Have you done any testing around like different like mobile forms of payment, uh, anything like that? Sure. I don't I don't have stats in front of me of how different payments have grown or, or shrunk over time. Um, and to my knowledge, we have not tested anything of like add that payment method versus not have that payment method. Right. I, I think. The primary um, alternate payment method is is PayPal for us. I mean, we do a significant portion of of that with PayPal. And and we're going back to the risk assessment, I was thinking about this. It's like we sort of conceptually know that like PayPal increases it, and and me as a consumer, like I've used it, I understand why that is. And it's almost like I don't want to test it even to validate it because I'm like I know that it's you know it's about ten percent of our transactional business, and just the idea of like watching the numbers fall um, gives me a little bit of a heart palpitation. <laughs> right. However, I think some of the more emerging, some of the more emerging um, tools is definitely worth testing. It, it sort of draws back to like is that is that going to get us the highest return on on the testing time or not? Um, it would be really interesting to know, and I think it would be helpful in the future, but just essentially, like, if we're going to test something on the donation form, is it going to yes. actually be worth it? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think, you know, going back to, like, the tips for people testing, that's what we see a lot, is people will test something out of curiosity or just, like, what's easy, instead of trying to think through, like, well, what's, what's most beneficial, right? right. So, uh, you know, like, adding the Apple Pay or removing the Apple Pay is like, is that, 
really going to be super significant? And we've, we've ran that. We've seen no difference. You know, like okay. some people use it. Some people won't. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> yeah. In some cases, I think it's, it's a matter of convenience. I don't think that someone's going to drop off your site because you don't have Apple Pay. Um, you know, if you don't have any alternative payment method or, you know, if you're somebody who is, you know, one of the great things about PayPal is that it really speaks to the user who is very cognizant of their of their security. And so having that, you know, that it provides right. something that's going to be an intermediary between the processor and the, the consumer. Yeah, I think the other thing that we're, we're all going to have to wrestle with increasingly as we, we do like third party funding sources and even things like Apple Pay, Google Pay is it puts more and more control of the information in the hands of the users. You know, like when you use our phone forms and we make you use a credit card, we kind of right. tell you what information we get. The more that we use these forms of payment, they can say, yeah, use my payment. Do not share this information. They give through donor advised funds. Do not share my name. So now us as marketers and fundraisers where our currency is like data. It's like, well, we actually don't know who this person is. We don't have their email. You know what I mean? It's going to be really, really yeah, interesting. And Apple Pay that. is a great example of that. And I think about it every time I Apple Pay on my phone of like, yep. do you want to share your email address? And I'm like, nope. I'm not going to share my email address. Yep. You know, it's just like, it's just wonderful of like how that, how much control that is for the user. As the marketer, it's terrifying of like, what will we do if that ever happens to yep. where we don't have any of this information? But as a consumer, I really like it. Yeah. And I think, again, uh, I used to work for a donor advised fund focused technology company. And the struggle that we always had is you want to meet, you know, customer demands. They want to control their information. You don't want to just get like on everyone's charities list and things like that. But we'd always hear the complaint, then people like the giving experience was cold because I never heard from the charity. And it's like, well, you didn't give them your information. So like they have no way to contact you. So like you don't know how your donation was done. You know, like you don't know the impact. And it's like, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't get like personalized, you know, impact reporting and not share any information. Like that's just not how it works. So there'll there'll be a day of reckoning. I think. Yeah. And to be fair to them, yeah, they don't think like that. You know, they want both. So. Anyways, I think that'll be really right. interesting the more that these things do become, you know, a lot more prominent and some of the, the privacy legislation in California or Europe becomes more and more of a thing. It's going to create a I whole agree. new like ball of wax for us. Um, speaking of new balls of wax, I don't know if that's a good transition or not. Uh, crypto. Um, so it, it's one of the things that we <laughs> we kind of like ripped on quite a bit because maybe going back two years, there was like the whole this one big conference, it's whole like keynote was on you know like crypto and we do these research studies and like we can't even complete 20 percent of donation forms like we're so far away from being able to like really talk about something like crypto and we can't even like sign up for emails but um can you share a little bit more about like uh, what you've done in the world of crypto and maybe like why you did or things like that Sure. Um, you know, jumping to what you said first of like, you know, it was, it was a hot thing a couple of years ago and all of a sudden companies are accepting it and it just became, you know, massive. And, and I always, I always joke in the e-commerce world because it's always something, right? Like it was, <laughs> it was crypto and it, at one point it was mobile apps and it, a while ago it was QR yeah. codes and it's always yeah. something yeah. that like everyone right. loves the flashy thing. Um, me, I was like the person who like when Twitter became a thing, I was like, eh, I'm going to wait and see if like it actually turns into a thing before I participate in that. And that's sort of my approach to a lot of these things. Um, crypto existed before I joined the organization, but what's interesting there is, um, you know, it, 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 we didn't join it because it was the flashy thing. I think we joined it because it was a very niche opportunity to get people to donate 
um, something that they wanted to donate. It's not just another payment method, right? It's like they have this right. entire exactly. other currency existing and they want to yeah. donate that. They don't want to donate on their credit card. They don't want to donate cash. They want to donate um, cryptocurrency. And that's really why it's there. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I talked to someone who runs one of the like crypto companies and just saying like, yeah, it's not a payment method. Think of it more like a donor advice fund type donor, you know, where like they actually have an asset that they have somewhere that they can kind of like liquidate and give. And it's not even cash, right? Like it's actually right. an asset. Like it's very different than, you know, payment methods or something like that. And what's interesting is it's, it's not only that, it's like a user base and they have a community and, you know, a lot of people have some identity wrapped up in like, they're a crypto person, you know, like the more that you read about it, there are these like super committed, you know, like crypto type communities. So it does make sense. Like it, uh, you can't just play in their world and, and not, you know, participate in the world. Like if you want to be in that world, you have to like right. play in their world a little bit. Right. Um, have you learned anything like good or bad or, or maybe tips for people that are like, Oh, this is interesting. Like we should look into this more. We should do this. Uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, I knew that on like the individual philanthropy side, there was opportunity there, right? Like so large gift donations in crypto. Um, it took a little convincing and a little well, and a lot of data to get me on board with it as a mass market function. I really mm. thought it was going to be like, you know, sporadic individual gifts. Um, and it, it's, you know, certainly not at the level that we're seeing of normal payment methods, but we're seeing anything between you know, $20 and $5,000 on the mass market side um, and and regular and climbing. And so I think what's surprising there is like, it doesn't feel trendy and it does feel like there are enough users out there to to create an experience for them around crypto. Hmm. Cool, awesome. Um, well, thanks for sharing, you know, about testing optimization and payment methods in crypto. Um, we're going we're gonna to end with some rapid fire questions here. So I'll just rattle them off, quick answers, and then okay. uh, let you get on with your day. All right. Okay. So what is a um, tool, website, or app, or something in that vein that you found really useful personally or professionally? Uh, Conversion Excel. Ooh, good one. We, we uh, copy their stuff all the time. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, it's great. Okay. Favorite TV show you've watched recently? Uh, you know, being on Conversion XL and a lot of other material, I don't have a lot of time for TV, but um, I did watch uh, the full series of Shit's Creek, and uh, I really liked that. There it is. You couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> have you, The them. audience can't see you jumping up and down, but... <laughs> <laughs> if anyone has ever seen uh, a webinar I've done, they know I'm a big, I'm a big Shit's Creek fan. Plus, okay. it's Canadian, so can you <laughs> right. not, how can oh, you right, not right, like right. it? Yeah, exactly. It was good to see a Canadian show actually kind of make it big over the border. All right. Um, person, brand, or website uh, people should follow other than Conversion Excel. Uh, you know, it's it's going to sound staged to the audience if I if I say next after, but the uh, <laughs> the truth is is that um, not just my team, but like organizationally, people really love the the content that you produce. So um, so I'm going to go with uh, next after. Ooh, I did not tell them to say that. So thank you. That's good. <laughs> um, all right. Well, if if you're like me, you've you've door dashed many times or the equivalent of DoorDash. So I'm wondering what's the thing that you've kind of DoorDash the most in 2020? Uh, I'm going to say tater tots. <laughs> tater tots. Okay. Why are tater tots so much better than French fries? I, you know, I don't know, but I, uh, I took a trip to Nashville about two years ago and they are like 
they are crazy on the tater tots. Like tater tots <laughs> come with breakfast, tater tots come with dinner. Like you get tater tots like over ice cream. And I was like, I'm going to move to Nashville just because I can get tater tots anytime. <laughs> See, now the entrepreneur will be like, how do you take the tater tots back to Connecticut? You know, the, like <laughs> yeah, I see, absolutely. I see poutine in the United States everywhere. And all it is, is like Americans who came to Canada is like, what is this deliciousness of fried cheese and gravy? <laughs> and they bring it back down and start like these, you know, food trucks and stuff. That's all poutine. So maybe there's an opportunity for you. <laughs> Connecticut, Connecticut tots or something like that. <laughs> all right. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, uh, Joel, for coming on. Where can people find out more about you personally and the work that you're up to? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn's probably the best, the best spot to find me most consistently. All right. Uh, well, we'll, uh, really appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you again. And uh, like I said, we'll have to have you back on and dive deep in some of these areas. Sounds good. Thanks. Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com. That's podcast at nextafter.com. And if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research, resources, and training, you can find out more at nextafter.com. That's nextafter.com. Thank you very much for listening. And finally, I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill, our producer and mixologist. This would not be possible without him. So thank you, Nathan. And thank you once again for listening. 